there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Harvey Walker! Roger? You've got some explaining to do. Roger, put the glass down. Let's talk this out. Like hell I'll talk this out. All I've been doing is talking. 24 hours down at the police station, Harvey. I'm through talking. So? What does that have to do with me? You ratted me out to the cops, saying I poisoned the Tylenol. And then they went through my house, took everything, and charged me $6,000 for the privilege. All over something I didn't do. Does that sound fair to you, Harv? I didn't rat you out. Bull. But if you set foot in this bar again, I will call the police. And if you didn't like them then, you'll hate them even more when you're being charged with vandalism and trespassing. You'll pay for this, Harvey. Put it on my tab. In Chicago during the summer of 1982, seven people died horrible deaths under mysterious circumstances. There were plenty of victims, but not even the full weight of an FBI investigation could pin down a culprit. Leads were going cold, and tensions were running hot. Friends were accusing neighbors. Business owners were accusing patrons. The anxiety in the city was palpable. But even with intensely dedicated attention on the case, the Tylenol killer was still at large. This is Unsolved Murders, true crime stories on the ParCast Network. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. This is our final episode on the 1982 Chicago Tylenol murders. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merch. Head to ParCast.com slash merch for more information. You can listen to previous episodes of Unsolved Murders, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, wherever you listen to podcasts. On the morning of September 29, 1982, in a northwestern suburb of Chicago, 12-year-old Mary Kellerman complained to her parents of a sore throat and a runny nose. They gave her one extra-strength Tylenol and told her to go back to bed. But within minutes, Mary had collapsed, unable to breathe. She was rushed to the hospital, but died later that same day. Five hours later and seven miles away in central Chicago, 
27-year-old Adam Janus was also feeling unwell, complaining of chest pain. He took two Tylenol and went into his bedroom, staggering out a few minutes later and passing out in front of his wife. He, too, died a few hours later at the hospital. Adam's family converged on his house to grieve this sudden and inexplicable loss around 5 p.m. on the 29th. Adam's brother Stanley was so shaken by his death that he took two Tylenol from Adam's medicine cabinet to quell his growing headache. Stanley's wife, Teresa, took two Tylenol as well. The couple collapsed within minutes, becoming the second and third deaths in the Janus family that same day. Meanwhile, in the village of Winfield, Illinois, just outside western Chicago, 27-year-old Mary Reiner had recently given birth to her first child. While experiencing some postpartum nausea, she took a Tylenol and left her husband to look after the baby. She started suffering from shortness of breath, just like Mary Kellerman and the Janices, and she died in the hospital just after 3 p.m. The sixth victim was a woman named Mary McFarland, a 31-year-old Chicago resident who took some Tylenol after a long day of work at the phone company. She collapsed in the employee break room of her work and died later that day. The seventh and final victim died sometime on the night of September 29th, but wasn't found until October 1st. She was a flight attendant named Paula Prince, who had bought some Tylenol after a shift at O'Hare Airport on the 29th. When she didn't answer any of her calls for two days, her sister entered her apartment and found her lifeless body on the floor. There were seven victims in all, and aside from the three deaths in the Janus family, there was nothing to connect the victims. At first, investigators were baffled. It was hard to pinpoint exactly what was going on, since the deaths happened in different suburbs of Chicago to several different and unrelated families. And while the victims' symptoms pointed to cyanide poisoning, there was nothing found in their homes to suggest an accidental dose of cyanide. The puzzle pieces just wouldn't come together until one nurse, Helen Jensen, noticed something strange during her investigation of the Janus house. That nurse noticed six pills missing from this bottle of extra-strength Tylenol. Six pills and three people dead. So what's the connection? A receipt paper we found in the bathroom wastebasket says that this bottle was purchased the same day Adam, his brother, and sister-in-law collapsed. I think there's something in the pills. It's just Tylenol. Well, it's still just a hunch, but don't you think the Tylenol could have been tampered with? Jensen had been right. The Tylenol found inside all the victims' houses had been bought the same day, September 29th, and had been laced with cyanide. The connection had been made. What followed was a mad dash to pull the product off the shelves, and soon, a nationwide hysteria. Seven deaths in the Chicago area have prompted a massive recall. Johnson & Johnson has pledged to pull more than 31 million bottles from shelves. Could your Tylenol be affected by this recall? Tune in tonight at 7 to find out more. Although the only Tylenol found to have been tampered with was discovered in the Chicago area, its manufacturer, Johnson & Johnson, moved quickly to ensure no one else would be affected. 
The nationwide Tylenol recall cost the company nearly $100 million. And if the mass hysteria did have one silver lining, it was that it pushed drug manufacturers to improve their safety standards over the next decade. While the killer was still at large, investigators had to guess at their methods. The most agreed upon method was that the killer had tampered with the bottles after purchasing them legally and taking them home. Although some have argued that the killer may have stolen the bottles, simply buying the bottles is a more straightforward theory. It creates a lot less suspicion and wouldn't risk the killer being caught shoplifting on camera. While either method would have had the same result, it seems more likely that the killer chose to buy the bottles normally. For a killer as methodical as this one, it's likely they didn't take any chances. From there, it's a simple matter of opening the bottles, cutting apart the capsules to empty out the medicine, and filling the empty capsules with poison. The open-edged capsules could be slightly melted to adhere them back together, and the tainted capsules were put back in the bottle, visibly indistinguishable from the untainted capsules. Back in 1982, Tylenol was only packaged with a simple lid and cotton to keep the capsules in place. There were no tamper-proof seals on the bottles at all. Acetaminophen, the drug that makes up Tylenol, was packaged only in gel capsule form rather than in pills. While the chalky pills might be harder for some people to swallow than the smooth gel, they are also much harder to tamper with. Working to prevent tragedy from striking again, Johnson & Johnson made changes to Tylenol's packaging as a direct result of the panic caused by the murders. This included the addition of foil seals, pill form medicine, and new gel capsules that were more resistant to tampering. They made it much harder for a copycat to try and recreate the killings somewhere else. That same year, a federal law was passed to make tampering a crime. And by 1989, all over-the-counter drugs were required to have tamper-proof packaging. However, this was small comfort to the families of the seven people who had already died. Their killer was still on the loose. And not only had no one been brought to justice, there was no way to know what kind of motive they had to kill seven innocent people, seemingly at random. At first, it seemed like there had been a break in the case when a ransom note was sent to Johnson & Johnson headquarters. The writer of the note took full responsibility for the crime and said that the killings would only stop if $1 million was wired to his bank account. The note was traced back to the known extortionist and murderer we mentioned in episode one, who, for privacy's sake, we are choosing to refer to by the alias Carl Sumter. In 1978, Carl had escaped conviction of the murder of his next-door neighbor, Raymond West, due to a technicality. Carl and his wife, who we will be referring to by the alias Carla, had been on the run since then, changing their name several times in the process. He seemed like the obvious culprit. The only catch? The Sumters had been nowhere near Chicago when the tampering happened. In September of 1982, they had been in New York, halfway across the country. Carl had written the extortion letter in a convoluted plan to frame his old boss for the murders. Investigators had hit another dead end. It had been 100 days since the investigation had begun, and leads were drying up. The FBI had failed to connect Carl Sumter to the murders, and the FBI's task force dedicated to the case had dropped from 140 detectives to just 20. 
There was just so little to go on, according to the Illinois Attorney General at the time. We lacked a crime scene and we lacked a motive, the two inroads to move into the solution. All that was left was the cyanide. No pictures, no credit cards, no witnesses, no evidence. Someone had to confess. And no one was willing to talk. At least not to the police. But with a series of murders this prominent, there were a lot of people in Chicago with something to say. All it would take to unravel this case was for the right person to say the wrong thing at the wrong time. Coming up, we'll get back to the chatter on the streets. And now, back to the story. In September of 1982, seven people were murdered in Chicago through randomly tainted Tylenol. By October of 1982, the FBI investigation had no leads to go off of, but someone would talk soon. Another Schlitz. Sure, sure. Put it on your tab with the rest? I'm good for it. Beer may be cheap, Roger, but it ain't that cheap. I said I'm good for it. Ah, come on, Harvey. Stop giving him such a hard time. I'm keeping track. I'm keeping track. Sheesh, nosy son of a gun. You and I know he gets a bug up his butt near closing time. Wish he'd mind his own business and leave me to drink in peace. Been a long day, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. Got half a mind to throw some cyanide into a bottle or two of his. Get this whole place shut down just to see the look on his smarmy face. (laughs) What are you talking about? You seen the news lately? All those cyanide pills they found in the Tylenol? Seven people died and they have no idea who did it. Don't take this the wrong way, but I think that's a pretty ingenious way to get someone gone. Wouldn't even take much. Hell, I've got everything I need in my garage right now. Ah, you're drunk, Roger. I'm just saying. And besides, if you got this place shut down, where would you go drink? Huh. You've got a point there. Roger Arnold was a 48-year-old dockhand living in the Lincoln Park neighborhood west of Chicago. He frequented a bar run by a man who, for the sake of anonymity, will be referring to as Harvey Walker. Although Arnold was a regular at the bar, he wasn't fond of its owner. It's unclear how the grudge initially started, but things came to a head after news of the Tylenol murders broke. One night at the bar in late 1982, while Tylenol was still the biggest story in town, Arnold began talking about the murders to another patron. While he didn't outright confess to being the perpetrator, he did make some concerning comments. Well, most people who knew Arnold knew he wasn't an incredibly stable guy. One of his hobbies was DIY chemistry, mixing concoctions together in his garage to see what would explode. He never really told anyone what he was experimenting with, but his miniature laboratory was stocked well enough to be troubling. So on October 18, 1982, someone sent in a tip to police. Maybe this unstable chemist had a hand in creating the cyanide panic that had swept the nation. State your name for the record. Roger Arnold. Thank you. Do you know why we brought you here today, Mr. Arnold? Hell if I know. Do you remember any comments you made at a bar owned by Harvey Walker two nights ago? Comments? 
I made a lot of comments. I don't know what you're talking about. You don't remember saying anything about the Tylenol murders? I was drunk. I say stuff when I'm drunk. Doesn't mean I did anything. Am I free to go? We got a warrant to check your house an hour ago. We found your little chemistry setup in the garage, along with a book called... The Anarchist Cookbook. You can't be using that for anything good. That's my own business. Nothing there is illegal to own. We also found several unregistered handguns. Those are, in fact, illegal. We also found two one-way tickets to Thailand. You have business in Thailand, Mr. Arnold? I want a lawyer. We can book you on the handguns alone. Just tell me what you had to do with the Tylenol murders. I had nothing to do with them. Who's telling you that? Was it Harvey? I can't tell you that, Mr. Arnold. I want a lawyer. And I want to talk to Harvey. Arnold's house in Lincoln Park was an anarchist's dream. And at first glance, it seemed like a slam dunk for the case. Unregistered guns and plenty of ammunition, dangerous chemicals, back issues of Soldier of Fortune magazine, and two one-way tickets out of the country. But there was one important thing Arnold's stash was missing. Cyanide. Even after a thorough search, investigators weren't able to find any trace of cyanide at Arnold's house or any evidence that he had worked with it. What's more, all the evidence found at Arnold's house was purely circumstantial. Chicago police eventually cleared Arnold of any involvement in the Tylenol killings. Although he was charged with possessing unregistered firearms and released on a $6,000 bond. And for a while, that was the end of things. But it wasn't the end for Arnold. He was furious at the informant who had cost him his gun stockpile and $6,000, all over a few overheard comments. Although the tipster that brought his name to police had been anonymous, Arnold was pretty sure who it had been. The bar owner, Harvey Walker, had ratted him out. And Arnold was already plotting his revenge. The tension boiled for months. Arnold resented Walker, convinced the bar owner had been the one to get him in trouble. It all came to a head on the evening of June 18, 1983. Arnold approached a man on the street. He was seeing red. He had brought a gun with him and waited until the man exited a bar called Lily's on North Lincoln Avenue. Without a word, Arnold followed behind the man and shot him at point-blank range, killing him instantly. From behind, the heavy-set man resembled Walker, and as dusk fell, it was hard for Arnold to pick out the details. He believed he had shot Harvey Walker. Instead, Arnold had shot a man named John Stanishaw, a complete stranger who happened to resemble Walker from behind and in low lighting. Arnold's revenge had gone terribly wrong. Harvey Walker was alive and well, and a man who happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time was dead. Arnold was caught and convicted of second-degree murder in January 1984. He served 15 years of his 30-year sentence, was let out on good behavior, and died in 2008. For all of his quirks, Roger Arnold wasn't the most unusual suspect linked with the Tylenol case. And he certainly wasn't the most violent. Not by a long shot. By 1982, Everyone knew there was something off about Chicago resident Lori Dan. In September of that year, she had married an insurance broker, whose first name we are withholding due to privacy concerns. But the marriage quickly soured. 
Mr. Dan noticed his new wife had been showing signs of obsessive-compulsive behavior and encouraged her to seek a psychiatrist. Although she did visit the psychiatrist for a short time, it didn't last. And neither did her marriage. Damn it, Lori! Why'd you change the channel? I was watching that. Channel 17 is a bad number. We can't watch Channel 17. Well, they're only showing the game on Channel 17 right now. We'll watch a game on an even number channel. But I want to watch that game. It's a bad number. I said we won't watch it, and that's final. Damn it, Lori. Dan's strange behaviors were too difficult for her husband to deal with, and the couple separated in late 1985. At the time, Dan's friends and family were aware she was a bit odd and probably mentally ill, but no one suspected anything more than that. In fact, her name didn't come up in relation to the Tylenol murders until after her death in 1988, six years after the murders occurred long after she had already spiraled out of control. After her divorce from Russell, Dan's disorder only got worse. While living in a student apartment in Evanston, Illinois, other residents noted that she would ride the elevator up and down for hours on end, wear gloves to touch metal, and leave meat to rot in her sofa cushions. The last time she sought psychiatric help was in 1987, when she moved to Madison, Wisconsin to be observed by a specialized psychiatrist. She stayed at the facility for five months before abruptly leaving, sending death threats to her ex-husband and several ex-co-workers and driving back to Illinois. On the way, she stole books from a Madison library on preparing poisons and stole chemicals from a nearby lab, including diluted arsenic. She then prepared juice boxes and Rice Krispie treats tainted with the diluted arsenic. Those treats were mailed to former acquaintances, psychiatrists, and her ex-husband, Russell. On May 20, 1988, she traveled to Winnetka, Illinois, stopping at the house of two boys she used to babysit. She attempted to poison them with milk, laced with arsenic. However, her ruse didn't work. The boys noticed a strange taste of the milk Dan gave them and refused to drink it. After Dan failed to poison the two boys, their mother arrived back at the house. Dan lured the boys and their mother down to the basement, where she trapped them, doused the house in gasoline, and set it on fire. Miraculously, all three managed to escape the blaze before the house burned down. By then, Dan was already on the last phase of her plan. She drove to the nearby Hubbard Woods Elementary School, bringing with her a semi-automatic pistol and two revolvers. It's unclear why she chose this school in particular, possibly simply due to its proximity to the house that she had just set on fire. Whatever her twisted reasoning that fateful day, at 10.30 a.m., she entered the school and shot five children, killing one eight-year-old boy. She then fled the scene in her car. Dan's rampage was a shocking tragedy, especially since she had targeted such young children. And as she drove away from the scene, Dan's path of terror was far from over. Coming up, we'll have more about Lori Dan's deadly crime spree. And now back to the story. On the sunny morning of May 20th, 1988, 
Lori Dan, a suspect in the Tylenol murders of 1982, had just shot five children. She jumped in her getaway car and sped away from the elementary school. Although she immediately fled the scene, she hadn't planned her escape route well. The road she attempted to drive down was blocked, forcing her into a dead end. She left her car and ran into the woods on foot, eventually reaching a nearby family home. For the privacy of the family affected, we'll be referring to them as the Jones family. Need any help with lunch, Mom? No, sweetie. I've got it. Just at the table. Is someone there? Sorry? Shh, Mom. I think someone's in the house. Sorry. Just me. John, what's going on? Who, who are you? What are you doing in our house? I didn't mean to intrude. I just needed somewhere to hide for a bit. And your door was unlocked. Is that blood on your shorts? I was... My boyfriend, he raped me. I'm hiding out from him. Please, if I could just stay here for a bit. If he raped you, you should call the police. I can get you a phone. No! No, no police! Because I shot my boyfriend after. And I don't want to go to jail. Just explain that it was self-defense. It was self-defense, wasn't it? Can't you just help out a girl in need? I'm grabbing the phone. I wouldn't do that if I were you. Dan came across Mrs. Jones and her adult son, who were calling John, inside the house. She held them hostage with the two remaining guns that she had taken with her from her car, leading to a tense standoff between her and the police who had followed her to the scene. Around noon, she saw police advancing on the house and shot John non-fatally in the chest, retreating to an upstairs bedroom. Before she could be captured, she committed suicide via a gunshot wound to the mouth. So how was Dan connected to the Tylenol murders? Well, she wasn't connected directly, but after her killing spree in Winnetka, investigators saw some similarities between her case and the Tylenol killings. Most obviously, her attempts to poison friends and family with arsenic. Exactly. The arsenic-laced treat she mailed to several acquaintances, including her ex-husband, seemed familiar to investigators. And the timeline of events checks out. In September of 1982, Dan had just gotten married and settled down in Winnetka, 16 miles north of downtown Chicago. And, as we know, most of the tainted Tylenol had been left in northern Chicago stores. Maybe Dan was already sick of married life, or the major life change had affected her compulsive disorder in a destructive way, and she needed to lash out. And her multiple brief brushes with psychiatrists may have made her distrustful of medicine and over-the-counter pills like Tylenol. However, any possible connection is all speculation. There's no real evidence to tie her to the Tylenol murders. And there's just as much evidence that Dan had nothing to do with the killings at all. For starters, although it seems like the modus operandi between Dan's attempted arsenic poisoning and the Tylenol poisonings are similar, there are very important facts that set them apart. First, the Tylenol murders were a lot more sophisticated than Dan's arsenic poisoning. While the tainted capsules were well hidden enough to initially fool police, 
Dan's arsenic poisonings were sloppy and obvious. The juice boxes she sent in the mail were clumsily sealed and leaked from the bottom. The Rice Krispie treats were tainted with arsenic that was so diluted it likely wouldn't kill a healthy adult. Second, while the Tylenol murders were seemingly random, Dan's attacks were all targeted. She sent packages filled with tainted food only to people she knew and believed had wronged her in some way. And lastly, and perhaps most tellingly, Dan stole library books about types of poison just before sending her tainted treats. If she already knew about the effectiveness of cyanide, why switch to arsenic now? Why not just repeat the same procedure as before? The Lori Dan theory, as tempting as it is to believe due to Dan's strange and violent behaviors, just doesn't hold up under much scrutiny. Even investigators dropped the lead shortly after they began to follow it. But there is one last theory that might shed light on the Tylenol killer's identity and connect these murders to one of the most infamous domestic terrorists of all time. While the Tylenol murders represented a nationwide scare in 1982, there was an even bigger domestic terrorism crisis that had swept the nation in the late 1970s. Chicago Center, American 444 at flight level 340. Roger. Cleared direct to Washington Dulles. Copy that. Cruising at 495 knots. Looks like we've got clear skies ahead and... What was that? Did we hit some turbulence? No, it sounded like something in the back of the plane. Falling luggage, maybe. Maybe. But it was loud if we heard it all the way up in the cockpit. Well, we're cruising now. I'll go check it out. <coughs> What's going on back there? The whole cabin's filling up with smoke. <coughs> Do we have an engine failure? Something on the wing? No, all my instruments say we're in the clear. It has to be something inside the plane. <coughs> it's so thick. I can't see a damn thing. We need to deploy oxygen masks now. In 1979, several homemade mail bombs were sent to various airline officials, and one was stowed in the cargo hold of a plane. The bomb had been set to explode when the plane reached a certain altitude. Luckily for the passengers, the bomb had been faulty. The timing mechanism had been incorrectly set, causing the bomb to smoke rather than explode. Still, the smoke in the cabin was so thick that it began to seep through the passengers' oxygen masks. Thanks to the diligence of the pilots, the plane was able to make an emergency landing at Dulles International Airport, and everyone made it out without lasting damage. Experts agreed that if the bomb had been properly set, it would have caused an explosion large enough to crash the plane. This began a decades-long cat-and-mouse game between the anonymous sender and the FBI. As the bombs grew more sophisticated and deadly, the FBI followed more and more cryptic leads. You may have already guessed that we're talking about Ted Kaczynski, a.k.a. the Unabomber. We won't go too deep into Kaczynski's background today, but we will dive into why some people think he may have had a hand in the Tylenol murders. 
First, let's focus on means and opportunity. By late 1982, Kaczynski had already mailed seven bombs and retreated to his primitive home in the woods of Montana. Which wouldn't lead you to believe he was in the Chicago area. No, however, Kaczynski's parents lived in Lombard, Illinois, a suburb of Chicago just 20 minutes from where most of the tainted pills were found. And we do know that Kaczynski was living with his parents as late as 1971. It's not altogether strange to think he might have paid them a visit in September 1982. Well, the Tylenol murders also concurred with a quiet period from Kaczynski. No bombs were sent between July 1982 and May 1985, giving him plenty of time to go to Chicago and back. So he had the opportunity. But what about the motive? After all, most of Kaczynski's attacks focused on people he believed to be harming nature with modern technology. Well, for the most part, that's true. The Tylenol murders had a much more random area of effect than Kaczynski's mail bombs. However, there is a sort of randomness to the bombs as well. He had no way of knowing who would pick up the bombs at the addresses he sent them to. They were just as likely to kill a mail carrier as they were to kill his intended target. More than kill, the bombs were supposed to send a message to the recipients and their loved ones. So, in that way, the tainted Tylenol had a similar effect, sending a message that big industries like pharmaceutical manufacturers were poison. Now that seems more like a Unabomber target. In his manifesto, Kaczynski even pointed out the evils of drugs. He wrote, Imagine a society that subjects people to conditions that make them terribly unhappy then gives them the drugs that take away their unhappiness. Huh. That sounds more like a tirade against antidepressants than against fever reducers like Tylenol. True, but there's an even more esoteric connection between the Unabomber and the Tylenol killings. Wood. Wood was one of Kaczynski's obsessions. All of his bombs were encased in wooden boxes. Some of his victims had names related to Wood. Like Percy Wood, an airline executive who lived in a town called Lake Forest. And even his own alias was Frederick Wood, living on Wood Street in Wood Lake, California. The Wood connection may even spread to the Tylenol killings. The founders of Johnson & Johnson, the owners of Tylenol, were Robert Wood Johnson and James Wood Johnson. Maybe he targeted Tylenol in particular because of an inside joke with himself. The link may be small, but it's also all we have to go on in a case that appears to be an illogical act of violence against innocent people. Either way, this theory held enough water for investigators to take a DNA sample from Kaczynski in prison in 2011 to match against traces found on the tainted Tylenol bottles. However, the case was turned back over to local authorities in 2013. This means it's unlikely investigators found any DNA evidence of Kaczynski's involvement in the Tylenol murders. Although the case is technically still open, we don't know any more about their investigation into Kaczynski than that. Kaczynski himself delivered a statement saying he had nothing to do with the Tylenol murders. He even stated that he had never possessed potassium cyanide in the first place. Since he's already serving eight life sentences without the possibility of parole, there isn't much incentive for him to lie. So, Carter, who do you think was behind the Tylenol murders? It's so hard to say anything for sure. 
Carl Sumter, the alias we use for the man who sent the extortion letters to Johnson & Johnson and allegedly killed a neighbor for the insurance money, seems like a likely suspect, but he would have needed an accomplice killing in Chicago while he was living in New York. Plus, he seems like he got involved to frame his boss for murder rather than commit murder himself. That's true. What about you, Wendy? As easy as it would be to pin the crime on someone as mentally unstable and violent as Lori Dan, the crime just seems too sophisticated for her to have pulled off. Which means I have to go with Roger Arnold. We know he's capable of murder and not too concerned with anyone getting in his way. His botched revenge against Harvey Walker could even be seen as an attempt at covering his tracks. We also don't know the exact reason why police dismissed him so quickly for the Tylenol murders. Maybe there was something they missed. Maybe. But even after all the possible killers we discussed today, I still think there's a good chance the real killer has never even been questioned. Really makes you want to double-check your medicine cabinet doesn't it? Thanks again for tuning in to Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Unsolved Murders, as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and developed by Ron Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Unsolved Murders is written by Jordan Lyric and stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes, by alphabetical order, Mike Capozzi, Jerry Courtney Austin, Harris Markson, Steve Pinto, and Daniel Velasquez. 